What's up and welcome to the NYC Video Podcast, a show about the film and video industry here in New York and the pros that are making it happen. I'll be your host, Tom Chavez, and each week I'll be interviewing other New York filmmakers to learn more about their craft, their process, and with a little luck, they'll share some stories and observations of working in film production here in New York. Today's guest is a legend in the film and commercial world, and I'm really excited to have him on the show to talk about working as a crane and jib operator and to get his observations on where the industry is heading. He's been in the business for close to 40 years, and he's worked as a crane operator on huge films, commercials, indies, TV shows, and music videos that most of us would recognize instantly. The person that I'm talking about is none other than Scott Buckler, also known to his friends and colleagues on set as Scotty. Scotty and his team work closely with cinematographers and directors to pull off beautiful, sweeping camera moves that are precise and repeatable take after take. What sets Scotty apart, though, is the fact that he also custom builds every one of his cranes and jibs, ensuring that these large and heavy camera platforms are easy to move, easy to set up, and more importantly, that they operate safely around the cast and crew. Camera movement has changed quite a bit over the years, with dollies and cranes, steady cams, gimbals, and now drones. Each of these technologies is a tool that cinematographers use to tell a story, and over the years, countless DPs have leaned on Scotty and his team to execute these highly technical shots that fit into the greater project being filmed be it a film, be it a commercial, or a music video. Now, some of us may not know what a jib is, or what a crane is, or if you do, what the difference is and how to differentiate the two, which is fine. We'll get into this question and many more on today's episode. Anyway, let's jump into today's interview with Scotty after a quick word from our sponsors. If you're looking for a gourmet kitchen space for your next video production, check out Cooktop Studios located on the waterfront in Sunset Park, Brooklyn. The space is 3,600 square feet in size and it gets lots of natural soft light. The kitchen is outfitted with Decton countertops, finished cabinetry, and induction ranges and convection ovens. There is also an ice maker, dishwasher, and multiple refrigerators for your food stylists. Getting to the studio is super easy. It's minutes away from the BQE, subway, bus, or ferry boat. Cooktop also has on-site parking for production vehicles, clients, and crew. To learn more about Cooktop Studio and to see a video walkthrough of the space, visit cooktopstudio.com. Also, be sure to follow them on Instagram to see behind-the-scenes photos that other productions post on social media. I'll leave the links in our show notes. If you end up booking the space, you can get a discount by mentioning the promo code NYC Video Podcast. Happy shooting and bon appetit. Okay, so today we have Scotty Buckler here on the call. Uh, Scotty is a New York-based uh, jib operator. He also builds his own cranes, and we're going to get into exactly what jibs and cranes are uh, later on in the episode. But anyway, how you doing, Scotty? Uh, well, hello, everyone, and Tom, hello to you. So yeah, so the way I usually like to start out these uh, podcasts is to just jump right in and, and basically find out how you got into the industry and, and learn a little bit more about you that way. So if you could just tell us a little bit about you know where you're from and how did you get involved in film production? All right, um, not 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 too complicated. I I grew up on a, a little tiny farm uh, outskirts of Baltimore. Um, time is what I did have. Friends is what I didn't have. And my brother had introduced me to photography. So I basically spent my entire high school in a dark room uh, doing photography. That then uh, sort of transformed into getting into film. And it was from a after hours film class at my high school. It was a really, really small um, high school. There, there was 30 people in the entire class. It was a little small private prep school in, in, in Baltimore. Uh, but there was this teacher, Michael McCarvich, and he really launched my creativity uh, in, into film. And, and so I started making these films. Um, you know, it was like 
sort of 10th, 11th, 12th grade. Uh, one of the films that I did it involved a kid who went crazy and decapitated his uh, his pet dog. Uh, no, I, I didn't actually decapitate a, a living dog, okay. but we actually got a dead dog and decapitated its head. So it's like I did strange things um, in, 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 in film. And um, so that, that kind of, you know, got, got me started. Cool. And then, uh, did you go to school for for film production, like for in college, or did you? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so the tail end of my high school, um, it was the summer just prior to my senior year. I made a film, and this film took off. Uh, it was entered into different festivals, won every contest that it was in, all the way up to a national competition. So I decided to apply. I either had the choice between NYU or USC in California. And my brother said, well, but Scott, if you, if you go to USC in California, you can't take your stereo with you. You can't fit it on the airplane. You can just pack a bag. <laughs> so I said, all right, well, that's not going to happen. So I just did one application to NYU because, uh, you know, three-hour drive. I can take my car and um, keep my stereo. So I did one application to NYU. I did not apply to any other schools. I had no plan B, which coming from a prep school, that's that's a big deal. Everybody sure. else was applying to like, you know, 10 out of 10 schools. But, and my grades weren't great, but I'm like, all right, I have a national award. Like it was basically the equivalent of the Student Academy Awards. Oh, wow. It was that, that prestigious. So I'm like, all right, I think from, from this award, I will, uh, that's going to be my ticket into NYU. And boom, yep, got accepted. So, uh, Grab my stereo, put it into the car. So this was fall of 1978. To those old enough to remember, the prior summer, July 1978, was the blackout in New York City. Wow, okay. And three days blackout, and the entire city went berserk, rioting, fires, like the, you know, the, the city at that point was a war zone. And so I'm like watching the newspapers going, wow, this is where I'm going in two months. You know, it's just sure. like, but, you know, <laughs> uh, made my way up to, to NYU, uh, unpacked my stereo and, um, you know, started uh, classes. And I did, this, you know, my focus was you got four years to make movies. When you get out of school, you're going to have to be a professional. You're not going to be able to make movies anymore. So all I did was just focused on making movies. And and I had a great time. Just did all sorts of di- different projects, different experiments. Went out on a, a, a fishing trawler off the George's Banks for, for four days. Uh, three and a half of the days I spent throwing up. <laughs> and um, and, 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 and through that, you know, we made this documentary. So really, really had a lot of fun. And uh, then I don't know if I'm getting ahead of myself, but, you know, just sort of in brevity, the tail end of NYU, it was uh, my time to take my final exams. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I got called to work on this movie called Toxic Adventure sure. as a second electric. And just real quick. For 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 those of you who don't know, uh, I believe it was made by uh, Troma Productions. I believe like Lloyd yep. Kaufman's company, which is yep. uh, just a legendary company here in New York. Um, a lot of filmmakers have come through that, and they make a lot of horror movies, I guess, and thrillers. And uh, and yeah, just a great place to cut your teeth. I think back in the day, and I think yep. they're still making movies today. Yeah, I mean they're just Lloyd Kaufman and Michael Hurst. I mean they they literally 
I remember Michael Kaufman, the DP, just screaming at every single person every day. It was like, it was like being in, in the military. Like, he whipped you into shape. And, uh, you know, we were totally stupid and clueless. I remember one time pulling an extension cord, and the end of the cord went into the swimming pool. Swimming pool was filled with with talent. (laughs) And everybody's freaking out because all they see is an electric cord being dragged through the pool. I'm like, no, guys, don't worry about it. You know, it's not plugged in. No, stupid. (laughs) You don't drag an extension cord through a swimming pool. Like, you know, we just, like, this is, like, this is how little we knew. And, um, you know, but we came out of out of that that movie learn, having learned a lot. Sure. But so what it was, so I had the choice of working on Toxic Adventure or taking my final exams and graduating NYU. And I called my mom up and I said, "Look, I really think that I should take this movie. Um, just something about it. It says this is going to be, you know, an uh, an opportunity that I'm not going to see again." And she said, "All right." Do, do, do what you feel is right. And so I did not finish NYU. I never did get my diploma. Um, and uh, along with Martin Scorsese, I think also never got his diploma from uh, from NYU. Oh, wow, There's okay. a whole host of uh, famous directors who never got uh, their, their diplomas from, from film school. So yeah. I'm, I'm not alone. <laughs> no, and you know, it's funny that you mentioned that because um, you know, I went to film school as a high schooler thinking that I had to go to film school in order to work in film. But since having graduated from Brooklyn College, I've never been asked for my diploma. I've never been asked for my GPA or anything like that. It's just, right. hey, can you do the job? Who do you know? And ultimately, yeah, can you just do the work? Um, so I think that's a big misconception that a lot of kids don't don't understand. What I have heard, though, from, a, you know, maybe it's anecdotal, but I have had people um, tell me that no, actually, productions are asking for resumes. And specifically, what they're looking for is college educated. And if you think how the industry has changed, how technologically based it is, um, you need smart people to handle the technology between the cameras, the lighting, all the stuff that's going out. And college does – the college degree does indicate a higher uh, training level sure. of an individual than a non-college. So to people younger now who might be in college saying, oh, I don't need this this degree, um, don't – don't cut yourself short for two reasons. One, you may actually be asked for it. And the second, um, not everybody stays in film. And having a degree might help you actually get a job that you can sustain the livelihood that film never actually worked out. So I do encourage people who are in college, finish, get the degree, don't get ahead of yourself and like, oh, I've got this job or whatever. It's just one job. Yeah, You'll get other jobs. Yeah. You know, don't don't lose sight of of the perspective of. Well, I mean, there was a conversation with a, a guy. He was, he's like a hundred and some odd thousand dollars in debt, and he has a, a master's in art or something like that. And I was like, well, what good does that do you as a film industry? You know, and he said, it's my ticket for retirement because the masters will allow him to go back and teach. So when he gets to the age where he just can't manage sandbags anymore, yeah. he's got something to look forward. And if he didn't have that master's, he wouldn't have I'm like, Okay, you know what? That's actually very intelligent. It's showing that you're thinking in advance that this may be a transitional career and not your final career. Yeah. So, yeah. No, that's a great point. I think uh, I've seen personally a bunch of my colleagues, too, like who've 
uh, worked in the industry for a number of years, and then they've transitioned into teaching, which is a really good, I think, uh, next career move, especially if, you're, if your career is winding down or, God forbid, you yeah. get injured on set and you can't actually yeah. perform you know, on set. It's a great alternative yeah. for that. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know. I mean, it's, the, the industry is great. It's a great learning experience. And what I have found is, you know, so it takes two years to just get known and then another two years to actually learn and know what you're doing. So now you're at four years. Then it's two years exciting to play, applying that. So that's six years. Then it starts getting really boring. And so by the time you hit 30, uh, there's sort of this exodus out of like, you know what, I'm tired of the ups and downs, tired of the hard work, I'm tired of the 18-hour days, and you want to move into something else. Yeah. What are you going to move into? So, uh, you know, uh, us lifers, we're stuck. Uh, but when you're in your 20s, um, yeah, you know what, you, you, this just may not be your final career. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's a good point. Uh, so, like, yeah, I think twenties, like in your twenties, and I can speak personally too. Like, I, I learned a ton. It was really exciting and everything like that. But now I'm like dead set, like right in the middle of my thirties, and I've definitely hit like a career plateau where I'm like I'm doing the same thing over and over on different jobs, yeah. but like it's this, it's very repetitive. So I'm trying to think like, what can I do next? What's the next step? And this podcast yeah. is actually a result of that. Uh, I'm just right. trying to like learn something different and try different things. But yeah, thirties well, each each decade and, and you can change. Is- what is interesting, the technology now allows people to have, you know, yeah, I'm a gaffer, but I do shooting on the side. And so, you know, not everyone gets pigeonholed, whereas before, you know, 15 years ago, if you admitted that you were doing DP work, well, the DPs would stop hiring you. Yep. Well, I don't want a DP on my set. I want a gaffer. 100%. Uh, so that, I think, has, has helped alleviate some of that, you know, feeling like a rut. You can you can have multiple hats and um, and still survive. But, yeah, it's still like with the paycheck, that work does plateau both in, in uh, a mental uh, uh, activity and pay scale. Sure. And 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 it, and, it get, and it gets frustrating. Sure. So yeah. Okay. So 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 you finished film school. You did uh, a stint on uh, Toxic Avenger. Um, what kind of projects were you doing as soon as you got out of film school here in New York? It just uh, it, it was a, a plethora of one after another after another of these you know low budget movies. And this was what's actually interesting is. So I started to, so I, 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 I worked with the gaffer Richie Morrow for a number of years as his second electric. Then I started to grow out of that relationship and I, I started getting my own lighting equipment and setting up my own business. It was called Electric Feet, spelled okay. F-E-A-T. It was actually short for electric feature, oh, cool. but I liked the, the, the play on the word of electric feet. Uh, and so the system of how... Uh, movies were were orchestrated back then is the productions could not hire A-list DPs. They they were just too expensive. So they would sort of hire emerging um, DPs whose rates were lower, had great energy, great ideas, but they weren't really predictable. You you don't know what the results were going to be like. So they would hire uh, a solid, reputable gaffer, solid, reputable grip, and these individuals were the production's insurance policy. If the if the DP shuts down, my gaffer will make sure it's lit. My grip will make sure it's it's mm-hmm. properly you know orchestrated, and the project will go through. And this was my role. 
um, as a gaffer. So I was being brought on job after job after job with extremely inexperienced uh, uh, DPs. And what, what burnt me out on gaffing, because I didn't understand this system and this role is job after job after job. You're doing great work. So the DP gets these, this, this great reel that's based on my lighting and rigs that I was building and all this stuff. They would take off their careers, would shoot to the top. They'd go and do big budget movies and not bring me. Hmm. And, and it got frustrating. That like, yeah, I'm back out on another low budget movie. And this guy is, is, you know, uh, is going places based on my work. Sure. And so I just, I just burn out. And that was sort of the transition into to doing the cranes. It's just like, look, I, I just can't do this lighting. I'm, I'm just too frustrated. So there was a whole 1990 was the switchover because that was the year of the lockout when uh, our work uh, east of the Mississippi River uh, completely shut down. This, this was uh, the producers on the West Coast saying, uh, we are going to shut down your contract. We're going to give you a new contract. The terms will not be as favorable as the old contract, and we will not bring any work East, East Coast until you agree. So basically for a three-year period. This was just for like union productions or also non-union yeah, productions? Yeah, but it just, it trickled to everything. Okay. I mean, it just overnight, you, you know, it was just like, okay, there's no work. You know, and the word that was going out was, yeah, it's it, it, everything shut down because all the the ancillary work shut down as well. Hmm. Uh, the union work has always been an engine to to the the, the, the whole health of the the industry. So that was the year I just said, look, I'm sitting on all this lighting equipment. I don't want to do lighting anymore. I started selling it off. I I, I actually physically moved my shop from uh, Brooklyn down to Baltimore, where, which is where I was from. The hmm. the rent was which much cheaper. And I said, I'm going to just spend this, you know, two years or however long this lasts. I'm going to build a camera crane that's going to be similar to a tulip crane, which is two people ride on it. Tulip crane was 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 famous for tipping over, had all sorts of problems. And I said, I'm going to I'm going to solve these these problems and come up with a better piece of equipment. And um so that was, uh, you know, this this whole tri- switchover. So there were a lot of causes uh, that went into it hmm. uh, between the frustration of being a, a, a gaffer to just like, okay, but there's no work anyway. And uh, this is a good op- opportunity to, to, to set yourself up for something that you will enjoy. And I've always enjoyed building. I mean, sure. that goes back to five years old. I was the, the, the kid out in the garage building stuff. So uh, it, it was a natural uh, switch over to take place sure. and um yeah and then 92 or whatever it was uh decided all right cranes uh built music videos are are, are, are done in new york mm-hmm. not in in baltimore packed everything up came back to baltimore and that was coincided with basically the emergence of rap and new york city for music videos just took off and just real quick, before before we get into this too much, but uh, for for listeners who don't know what a jib or a crane are, can you just really briefly explain? I guess what is a jib? What is a crane? Yeah, What's the difference? Okay, it's it's a good question. It's one of these these terms that goes back and forth. So you have a Jimmy jib, and that's just like a, a fixed length crane. It, it's a it's a seesaw. You got a pivot point in the in in the middle, and say a three to one ratio. So you've got three feet behind the 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 pedestal where you put your weights, and then nine feet in front of it uh, of the pedestal and that's where you put your camera and you get it all balanced and then you know a guy moves it left and right and up and down and on a jimmy jib he actually does uh, the camera controls as, as well and so that's that's 
purely a jib. Um, I I do the 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 switchover from cranes to jibs at about twenty some odd feet. So anything shorter than a twenty, I'll still call a jib. Okay. Like my techno, that's uh, twenty foot. Yeah, uh, you, you, it's more accurate to call that a jib because it's smaller. Uh, anything. 20 feet and over, 25 feet and over, I call a crane because it's still the same principle, but just the magnitude of the structure to handle such a large size is much greater. Uh, you have to have a heavier duty base, a wider base. The The arm itself has to be beefier. So everything is just, just beefier. So that that's you know more a, a crane describes that terminology better now with production sometimes i'll say to them like look on your permit even though we're using you know a 50 foot techno write down jib because if the wrong people see crane mm. they're going to think a construction crane interesting you know that's 200 feet up in the air and they're going to shut you down they're not going to understand that a camera crane is still a very specialized term but so there are times where I'll instruct uh, uh, production. Yeah, just, just use the word jib because you're not doing yourself any favors. But when we get onto a job and I've got a 50 foot techno, please don't call it a jib. Sure. It really is. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so you started building them these uh, these. Uh, so your first one was a jib or was it a crane when that you built in Baltimore? No, actually, the first one was a a, a, a crane. It was 25 uh, foot. Okay. This is actually before I went down to Baltimore. Uh, so I had built this 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 uh, this crane. It was 25 uh, uh, feet from pedestal to the end of the, the the platform, and it went about 25 feet up in the air. Two people rode on it, and there's actually another techno guy. His, his name is Matthew Roberts, and he was a young DP at the time. And I actually have a photograph of him on the end of this crane outside this building in, in Soho. The fact that any two humans would ever have gotten up onto that piece of equipment uh, is remarkable. It, 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 awesome. <laughs> it, it was safe because it was tested, but you looked at it like my, my manufacturing aesthetic skills were absolutely abysmal. <laughs> um, you know, this, you looked at this. You weren't winning any awards just, for that. <laughs> yeah, no, no awards whatsoever. I mean, I was working out concepts and designs and, and I'm like, all right, I'll make it look good, good later. Uh, but so, and that crane is actually I was on a music video. This was 1989. I was getting ready to move to Baltimore. I had already started the move. So it was, it was probably like one of the last jobs that I did in, in New York City. And I was doing this music video. And it was 4 o'clock in the morning. The crew had gone off to do another location. Night exterior. No cell phones. Nobody was left behind. And I had to figure out how to take this crane apart and pack it into my truck. Uh, it did not go well. Oh, um, an accident occurred and this crane fell on top of me Wow! and it should have actually killed me. And the fact that I survived the accident is just, uh, just, it's still remarkable when I think of, about the magnitude of what happened that night. But I promptly took the crane down to Baltimore, uh, got a dumpster and everything went on into the dumpster except for the weight basket. I saved okay. that, but I threw the whole thing away and I said, okay, you're going to build a crane. And from now on, you will only design and build these cranes by yourself, and you will design them such that they can be put together and taken apart 
by yourself safely and repetitively under any conditions. Mm. It completely changed the whole nature. Even my 45-foot Techno, which is a 9,000-pound crane, wow. can be taken off the, the truck, assembled, worked, operated, taken apart, put back on the truck by myself, and I've done it time and time again. Because though I go out as a two-person uh, crew, the equipment by design must allow for a single person to do it. Uh, and it's based on that accident. So it, it, it totally changed the, the nature of how I went around de designing. Sure. So yeah, that's, that kind of gives you like, you know, the, the, the background. Sure. And, uh, like, you know, designing a jib, I'm sure isn't something that anyone can do like on their own, like very easily. It requires a lot of like background. Did you have a background in building, uh, or soldering or in welding and all that stuff? Yeah. Or? Well, so what it was is back in my gaffing days, um, my style as a gaffer was I wanted all I wanted to go into a location and get all the lights up into the ceiling uh, with no stance. And this way, when they came in to shoot, they could shoot 360 degrees and have no stance and not have to re, uh, relight. Well, back in the, the, the mid-1980s, there was no rigging material. There was no modern. There was no... Matthews had, like, you know, grip stands and maffer clamps, but, but just nothing like what exists now. Uh, the first... Um, what, do, what do they call it? Uh, not a mega arm. Uh, a boom uh, arm? Or a uh, menace arm? Menace arm. Yeah. I, I was the first person who ever introduced a menace arm onto a film set. Wow. Okay. Exactly. You know, and, uh, you know, but I had figured, figured this stuff out. Well, in the course of doing that, I bought a welder, 200 amp welder, a drill press. I started machining this stuff, welding it together, came up with my own line of uh, speed rail fittings. And this is what started the whole process. Then it was, I wanted to get wall spreaders that were longer than 10 or 12 feet. I needed to get into trussing. Yeah. So I had trussing that would all break apart into a milk crate that could get me up to 28 feet. So this is what introduced the whole element of 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 you know the structural engineering mm -hmm. and i spent a summer i just went to barnes and noble i got every uh book on bridge design mm -hmm. and just sat there and read read about bridge design the trust formation sure. how is load transferred so just to get myself familiar on you know what the, the 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 engineering aspects are and then applying it testing it, but always starting small and incrementally working up into more and more complicated of, of rigs. Sure. Uh, so, yeah, it never occurred in one day. It, and I didn't initially set out to build cranes. It was just to, you know, like, I just want to get my lights up in the air. Sure. Uh, you know, but then as I started building cranes, people were like, oh, well, you can't be a gaffer with, with, with cranes. You know, that's ridiculous. Well, it was a mistake to ever get rid of the lighting equipment because, yes, if you want to be a gaffer with, with camera cranes, then you're a gaffer with camera cranes. But that's when I said, you know what, I, I'm sick of lighting anyway, yeah. and uh, I got rid of the lights. You know, okay. it goes back to our prior discussion. Sure. <laughs> and, like, so when you when you transitioned from, say, a gaffer into, uh, you know, jib operator, crane operator, did you have any mentors that were, that were you know, other jib operators, or did you just kind of go no. in blindly and just no, figure it out myself? We all hate each other. Always will. Always have. Always will. And anybody who tells you anything else um, is lying. Um, no, the, the crane market has been and always will be intensely uh, competitive. And um, 
Uh, no, I, I mean it's it's not true. Like I'm I'm friends with Anthony at uh, at ASL and love him for the work that he does. Uh, you know, he understands what he has and he understands what I have, and and you know we don't sit there and 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 bitch at each other. Sure. Uh, but no, otherwise, uh, you know, in the building it has always been this very solo uh, concept. I had a guy named Bill McDivitt um, who first. Uh, I was his first job, but he would come over to the, the shop every day and we would start building stuff. And that, see, this is what painted me into the corner is that Bill and I would, you know, our very first uh, jibs that I, and cranes that I was making, it was the two of us uh, doing this. And so I didn't have that discipline that, well, but what if you have to do this alone? Uh, so I, that had never even occurred to me that I wouldn't have Bill or Louis Perez there to help me with the crane until that day in 1989 when both Louis and and uh, Bill McDivitt were sent to another location. Mm. So, you know, so that was the day that uh, the, tr- the crane fell on you? Yeah, oh, okay. but, but there was no there was no mentor. Uh, this was just trial and error. Try this, try this. Or, you know, it didn't, doesn't work, doesn't work. Sure. All right, try this other thing. Doesn't work. It was just you know strictly done by, you know, what are the concepts, what are the, the, the possibilities, and and work. And which is why initially everything was so, just horribly ugly because I was just dealing like what will it do to solve this problem and make it safe. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't care what it looks like. Uh, so it it, it kind of diverted me from really understanding the the, uh, the why aesthetics is so important. It wasn't until later that I realized that aesthetics and safety and functionality work hand in hand. Things that are are look nice to the eye are usually better working devices and are safer. Things that look awkward to the eye, well, the reason that they look awkward is because you have a sense of beauty and and, and safety. So when it looks ugly, it probably isn't going to work right. Mm, and that's that brought in, you know, then that, that took 10 years, 15 years before I could start understanding that correlation between aesthetics, safety, functionality, yeah. and just not having people laugh at me on, on film sets. Sure. You know, sure. So, so when you moved to New York, I guess, and you started kind of really going in full, like full in into being a jib operator. What kind of what kinds of projects were you working on? Any like any projects that people might know, or like I think you mentioned some music videos. Well, music, yeah, there was just endless music videos from 1992 to really it uh, went up until uh, 2000. The budgets on these jobs were just you know huge they they just had money to 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 blow sure and so they 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 just had every piece of equipment imaginable uh what happened in the 2000s is is uh you had the collapse of the 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 music industry so for 10 years they didn't you know napster they didn't know how to charge for the product Mm. and so the the whole industry just just basically collapsed yeah uh but and and interestingly what fueled the the market uh, so the rap industry was basically, and this is an alleged, as I have no proof, but it was basically funded by money laundering of drug sales. So you had, because there would just be these suitcases of cash. Really? Wow. Everything. And, and so this was a way to get your your money transformed into another industry. And, uh, and, and, and you know, but that, that, that funded the whole... Uh, uh, 
you know, rap world. Sure. And sounds like the good old days. A, with, I'm sorry, what's that? It sounds like the good old days. Now I'm yeah. fighting tooth and nail to get a decent paycheck. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's just, uh, you know, it's just, it's just the way it works. Uh, now, now budgets, you know, especially on music videos, they're, they're very tight. Yeah. Uh, they, they do it. It's a system where the, the record companies are still paying for the music videos, but the music video is deducted from the artist's advanced fees. This is what was explained to me. So, uh, you know, so, so you, you get a lot of $10,000 music video mm-hmm. for low budget would be, you know, $150,000 budget. So now, you know, do cranes go out on these jobs? No, not regularly. Now you, you've got the gimbals, the handheld, uh, you know, Movi pros and sure. that kind of stuff sure. that, uh, they're getting what they want. Uh, you, you've, you've got, you know, a guy who does a, a gimbal on, a uh, one of those motorized, uh, foot dollies that, uh, you know, and he, he's like, yeah, I can do a techno shot because I can go in and out. And it's like, yeah, you know, on eye level, yeah, you can get very, very similar type of effect to what a techno is. Um, but you can't go left and right. You can't go up and down. But, hey, you know, for $10,000, you're sure. getting footage that they can use and they're happy with. And uh, so, yeah, you know, uh, and, and, and then then what you've got now, because cranes are so popular and there's so much work in New York City. Uh, supply will always outstrip demand. Sure. So now you've got the emergence of monster remotes that, you know, 20, uh, guy, who knows how many techno cranes they have. And so that that then becomes the default for all the bigger budget productions. So like, just just call monster, just call monster. Sure. Uh, non-union jobs, like, oh, call monster. No, we don't do uh, non-union, click. You know, right. it's like, oh, okay, yeah, better, better call Scott or, or you know, <laughs> movie mobile. Yeah. But, uh, you know, so it, it it, it, it's still, you know, intensely competitive because uh, there's just now a million, million cranes and everybody wants to buy a crane because they think this is like God's gift to, you know, how to make a million dollars in a very little period of time. But the reality is that that was in the 1990s when you could go and spend $15,000, $20,000 top on a jib, Jimmy jib make 1500 to $2,000 per day wow. and recoup your expense in 10 days. Wow. All right. You know, like what an idiot. Why didn't I just buy Jimmy chips? Sure. You know, like I, 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 I would have made so much more money. Uh, but those days are now over and those Jimmy chip guys are dealing with, uh, you know, a, nobody wants Jimmy chips for legitimate, legitimate projects. Like they'll go out for weddings. Uh, there's one place they actually have their bases that they can hoist up to the ceiling because they only go out once a year. Mm-hmm. And they're like, you know, we'll, we'll, we're we not making any money. And it's like, well, yeah, because now you have to spend $150,000 between, you know, and that's to start. Right. Uh, and you're not getting much more per day. And they're like, well, why would I spend that much money to only make $2,000 when before I, I spent $20,000 to make $2,000? I'm like, well, but don't you understand you're sitting at home? Yeah. You know, the industry changed. You, you, you can't continuously soak producers uh, in this manner and not expect them to eventually move on. So it allows the, 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 the few people who do have the technos to you know, at least have first stabs on, on jobs and the Jimmy Jeep guys are still trying to figure out why their, their equipment's not working or why they get the lowest of the low budget jobs. Sure. It's like, well, the, the market changed. Yeah. Uh, and you know, with the markets changing and, and prices 
differing. One of the questions that I've always wondered is like as an owner operator, what are some of the challenges that, that you experience operating your jibs? And people that don't have like a background, um, when they hire you, they just think you're a guy that's going to show up with this magical arm that's going to fly a camera, but they don't understand what goes into the process. So what kinds of things do you do you, do you deal with? So, so this is, I, w- I, would, I would say, probably 90% of, of my phone calls, mm-hmm. uh, you know, where I have, you know, somebody calling up, they've been told, you know, hey, you know, call Scotty for his, for his techno crane, and they call me up, and I can tell right off the bat, it's like, okay, you don't know anything about this equipment, and they're like, yeah, I don't know anything about it, and I said, okay, you know, awesome, what my job is here is to try to help give you the information that you're going to need to know on a really simplified um uh, 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 presentation so that you have an idea of what is going to be arriving and what's going to be, what, what it will entail. And then I'll say, so, but for the more uh, detailed questions that I have, let me talk to your DP uh, directly. Uh, and they're like, yeah, that that's fine. Or the director, you know, so, somebody who, who actually has the idea. Uh, but yes, it's it's very frequent where I'm, I'm talking to somebody and I don't mind that at all. Like you're not born with this not knowledge. Uh, you might use cranes only a couple times a year, mm-hmm. uh, if, if even that. Um, so for, for somebody to call and say, you know, we're, we're not familiar, it's like, I would rather you be honest and then I can try to like, you know, explain to you, you know, what, what will you need to know that will impact your budget, your schedule, um, you know, and your job. And then, um, and then we go from there. Uh, I don't know how other companies work, uh, as far as whether they are so sympathetic or whether they are demeaning to the individuals, which would just be, you know, horrific. Sure. You know, why, why would you do that? But I, I can't speak for other people. I, I, I tend to fear their ability to hold somebody's hand and say, you know, like, no, the, the, your, 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 the crane that you're asking for is actually not the right piece of equipment based on my discussion with the director. And I advise this other piece of equipment. It might be sometimes upset, upselling, you know, meaning a bigger piece of equipment. Um, because like every job, it's like, Oh, well, we, we just want you a 20 foot crane. I'm like, okay, well, you know, that shot where you want to get up over the tree and look down a 20 foot crane is not going to get it. Right. right. We, we, we need something bigger to get that. And it's like, all right, well, how much more is that going to cost? Well, it, it's, I, I actually have the, the two cranes priced very, very closely mm-hmm. so that it's not, you know, but, but there's if time and time again, they just will order something the smallest. Cause like, okay, well that, that's all we have in the budget. And it's just like, yeah, but it doesn't do you any good. Yeah. Uh, the equipment is still too expensive to have the wrong piece of equipment show up. So let's figure out what it's going to take to get the right piece of equipment. And uh, so, you know, this, this is just uh, the ebb and flow of, of customer service. Sure. Uh, we are, and, we, yeah, we, we all work in a customer service industry. Uh, the producers aren't arrogant overall. They just don't know and they're frustrated by getting inaccurate information. And so when you can take the time and, and talk things through, uh, hopefully that makes them feel like they've, they, they've hired the right person. Sure. Uh, yeah. And, so you know, you're, you're bringing out of like a lot of this equipment. Um, it's heavy. It's dangerous. You already mentioned that you almost got killed once. Did you ever kind of have like any big fuck ups on set where, you know, you forgot a piece of gear or did you ever make any mistakes? And like, what did you learn from those mistakes? Well, uh, knock on wood. Uh, as far as mistakes, 30 years, no other individual has been injured 
um, from my equipment on a job. And this is something I take very, very seriously. I cannot say that necessarily for myself. Um, I've been, I've, I have injured myself doing dumb things, uh, you know, lacerations where it's like, oh shit, uh, somebody got a rag. I just, you know, opened up my hand and there's no way to get me to a hospital. Nor most of my accidents requiring hospitalizations, you know, sutures are in the, uh, the testing phase, you know, in my shop. And it's like, okay, I just amputated the tip of my finger. Ah. Damn it. <laughs> you know, oh, you I believe just ran my, my fingers through a chain and sprocket, and Ooh. I can actually see the bone. Wow. Um, yeah, okay, we got to go to the hospital. So, so uh, I do, because I do extensively test everything out, and I can tell you that the number of times I've been injured, injured are, are too many to, uh, to, to ever recall. Uh, as far as uh, forgetting things and, and that is extremely rare just because my trucks are I worked at one point with a, a truck I had seven cranes on it and a machine shop wow. so when I went out on to a job I mean this was where equipment was still in its infancy I brought everything with me because I never knew what it was I was going to have to do and when I was going to have to do it to, to get through the job and then as the, the equipment matured and, and I expanded I got rid of the the, uh, the, the the machine shop but I had these seven cranes and then I got to the point where you know what it's just too much work to build and, and do this every day and so I scaled down to, to two basic cr- cranes on two basic tr- on two trucks so it's all simplified. Um, but yeah, I keep everything where I know exactly what I'm going to need. And, um, so that, that element of forgetting something is, is very rare. And when I live in Kingston and all my jobs are in New York city, it's not like I can go running back to the shop when I need something. So it it keeps you alert to, to make sure you go through everything to, uh, to, to have what you need. Yeah. I think to be like an owner operator, you have to have that kind of really methodical mentality where you know, you kind of keep track of all every nut and bolt that's in your truck or in your car. You have to know that it's going to be there on the day of the job. Yeah, I mean, th- this is this is a virtue of the, the owner operator versus the rental house. I was doing tech uh, work for another rental house for for a while, and it was very frustrating because you arrive on there's no checkout day. Um, and you arrive and, you know, here's the crane and, you know, it's like, okay, hopefully everything's here from the day before. Hopefully it got checked out. Uh, hopefully it works. And if it doesn't work, well, at least you have, uh, somebody to call and, and deal with, you know, getting a replacement, but it's just a very vulnerable, uh, uh, feeling to be in. It's like, I don't have any control over, uh, what it is that I'm doing. I work, walk on these jobs and it's like, oh. We're carrying this crane up into this uh, church, and uh, grips are building this ramp, and this like I know nothing about. It. It's all being done in the office, and they don't transfer any of the, the information over to the text. So you show up, and it's like, oh, that's what we're doing. Gee, I would have liked to have known just to mentally prepare for my day, but yeah, they, they don't care. You show up. Uh, you know, you, you're not even getting booked until five o'clock the, the day before. You're praying that you will get a call sheet by eleven o'clock at night, knowing that you probably have a, a pre-call at six o'clock in the morning. You know, it's just like that's 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 your only goal in life. What does it take to get a preliminary call sheet? Yeah. You know, yeah. So I, I can determine whether I have a 4 a.m. call. Do I have a 10 a.m. call? Do I need to go down to the city the night before? You know, like 
all of the so much less all right fine i made it to the set uh and oh this is what we're doing okay you know i to me it just seems sloppy yeah. and and i just got very very frustrated and and i became not a not a friendly uh technician and <laughs> so we, we we mutually decided to to part our ways that the um, you know, it's what I call contamination. I have rig and design, which has worked a certain way. And then I have another company that's worked a different way. And I, you know, I have that comparison. And so I'm not going to be happy because the rental house just is not going to ever be an owner operator. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're just, they're just different operations that sure. run differently. And so if a producer wants that rental house uh, formula, because they can call up the night before and change their order. You know, what I, I don't understand, but they, they have their reasons, and we both have our place in, in society, so, so to speak. Sure. Uh, yeah. You know. Just changing subjects a little bit. Um, you know, with your cranes and your jibs, they're really big. They're very heavy, as you mentioned. Um, safety is obviously a big concern for, uh, for you as well as producers and crews that are working uh, around your equipment. What kinds of conversations do you usually have with uh, a producer – or whoever's hiring you prior to the job? Uh, n- none at all. None at all. You bring up the, the question, you, you do not want to go there. Yeah. Um, and and this is this is part of the problem because see, everybody, especially since Sarah Jones, who's, you know, uh, a camera assistant who uh, was killed on a set down in, in South Carolina, North Carolina, uh, uh, Midnight Rider shoot on a on a train trestle so ever ever since uh sarah jones that's whatever six years time time flies yeah um everybody's oh safety 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 um okay but implementing safety if the safety actually affects my operation make no mistake um not not so sure that safety is really actually all that it's caught up to be um it's just you just better not be be caught um but as far as actually, you know, changing natures of the, the, the business to relate to safety, uh, that did not change. And this this is an area I am passionate enough that I would like to go into sure. uh, concerning the safety. So the way technocranes work is, uh, you know, on a union job, there's local 600, which is camera department, local 52 in New York, which is uh, grip department. So when technocranes first came out, they were all very electronic devices, very high technology. And so they became under the jurisdiction of local 600. Uh, even though cranes historically, since you know the 1920s, have always been a grip or a uh, dominated field. So there was a lot of tension initially. Like why why are the, 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 the camera guys getting uh, techno cranes and not the grips? So what's occurred uh, is, is this, this has morphed is the grips do the arm, the back of the crane, and local 600, they do the remote head and the telescopic action and, and all that kind of stuff. So, all right, but, but you still have that local 600 is the... the the overriding um, uh, uh, judicial market for the the technocranes, if I can make up all these terms. Mm -hmm. I I have no idea whether that even made sense. But here are the problems. So I'm in Local 600. Uh, I'm in as a camera operator. Uh, so, and I, you know, and I do operate cameras, so it's actually a, a, you know, the proper category for what what I do. Uh, Somebody else, like my last tech, uh, 
was brought into local 600 and she was offered you can either get a, a, cam, a, a camera operating card and that'll cost you ten thousand dollars or you can be a camera assistant and that costs you eight thousand dollars and she's like well you know i'm camera system is fine. Would she know how to take a lens cap off of a lens, you know, off of a camera? Probably, but I wouldn't want to ask her to do much more. But she's officially in the union as a, as a camera assistant. Well, there is no category for Technocrane. Hmm. It doesn't exist. So now you have people who are being brought into the union who have not passed any test. Uh, the, my last tech, they were brought in because I called up Local 600 and I said, I would like to have this individual uh, on Local 600 so we can do union jobs together. And they said, no problem, have her stop by, sign the paperwork, leave a deposit for, for her dues, and she's in. All right, they're doing it completely by my my word that you know I've trained her and verified her and all that stuff. They don't know what's going on behind the scene. You know, you can use your imagination of what somebody might do to, uh, to gain entry into local 600 and that somebody might be obliged to take that uh, offering. Sure. Like there's no checks and balances. So now you have people who are in local 600 and they may be very, very good at what, what they do, but there's no verification process. Local 52, if you want to operate a condor, you have to have a lift certificate. You want to uh, operate a forklift, you have to have a lift certificate. There's certifications for things that uh, are, are, have, have certain levels of OSHA-mandated uh, danger, not the technocrane. So picture you have your talent. You know, a multi-million dollar, you know, actress. And the move is the camera goes in at a high rate of speed to this person and then stops at a certain mark. All right. So you now have, a, a, a you know, 2,000 pounds of gear coming towards your actress. And the person who's doing that move, there is no way to verify that they actually know what they've what they're doing and that they have actually uh, done this before. Mm -hmm. All right, and I explained this to a producer once, and she's like, "Scott, no, no, that that could not be right." And I looked at her and I said, "Make no mistake, I'm telling you the God's honest truth." Wow, and That's she wild. was horrified. Yeah, she turned white. That like this was going on. The, and I have complained and complained and nobody wants to hear me. I'm like, this is, I don't even know how to implement it. Who's going to do these tests now? You know, is, 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 are you going to have one company testing the text of another company? Oh, sorry. All you guys failed. Right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> like, so I don't even know how to do it. You know, it, it like, it, but, it, but I still, but it, you know, it's just frustrating that I, I'll get a grip on the back of the, the, the crane. And this actually just happened last week. We're a uh, union grip. He's a dolly grip. I have no idea of his qualifications as a dolly. But to say that a dolly grip is automatically uh, skilled in camera crane use, I would disagree with that assess assessment. Yeah. There are dolly grips that are very good crane uh, grips. There are other dolly grips where I'm sorry, I have to take you off the crane. I'm not getting any of the, the types of moves that I need. Sure. I don't have a way to verify their skills. And now I'm on set as a camera operator saying, I'm sorry, but I need to replace you with my, my crane tech because she actually knows how to do the telescopic action and the crane because I 
I train to the, the point of annoyance uh, to do this. Mm-hmm. So this this is what I just get so um, upset about because it's some people would be like, hey, Scott, this is who they've hired. Uh, you know, it's not your job. You know, if they didn't hire the right people, they can't get the, their shot. You know, uh, just do your job, frame it, and that's all that, that you have to worry about. No, that's not the case because I've designed my own crane. You're going to find the blame game. Who can we blame? We didn't get the shot. Oh, it's because of this 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 crane. It's right. the crane's fault. Right. So I have to protect the reputation of the business as well as protecting the safety of the individuals involved on the set. Yeah. And so I've got to step on toes and do things. Oh, well, you know, he's he's not he's not a team player. You know, he did this, and it's just like oh, you know, like everyone hates me. Yeah. I mean, everything's fine when things are working, but when things aren't working, then and fingers are pointed, it's going to be on you. So yeah, you have to basically uh, you know, take the to initiative. Me, 52 and it should be taking over the techno cranes lock stock and barrel all right because they have the facilities and the 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 know-how to mandate testing you know because they do it before i just think that local 600 is just not set up they're camera guys uh they're they're good for high technology uh very you know very intricate things uh, but cranes, this is just—it's just not their strength. Sure. And but you know, the, but like little children, they they fight over it. Right. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. Interesting. Well, yeah, that's a, it's, it's definitely a, a big concern, I think, for a lot of people, and especially when things like um, Sarah Jones happens, um, it's just very eye-opening about the safety conditions and and the lack the lack of safety uh, measures that are currently in the industry. So I'm glad that that's on top of your mind and hopefully through these talks and on the podcast, hopefully change will, will happen and there will be more training hopefully for uh, people that are, you know, grips that are operating your cranes to hopefully, you know, do it safely and, and have better training yeah. to do it more efficiently. Because yeah. sadly, you know, when, when uh, there, there was – it's way back in the eighties. I saw the or early nineties. Uh, I saw this homemade crane that this guy had made of oh, jib, and it was so dangerous. It was. It, 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 I just shuddered. And I, and he goes, "Well, oh, Scott, why are you why are you being such so nasty to me? I don't do the projects you do. I do little jobs." I'm like, "It doesn't matter if your crane fails on a job. Your jib fails on a job. That can have a trickle down effect." To, to the entire industry. Yeah, it's true. You know, and especially with homemade cranes. So now you take like an accident at one of the big rental houses. Well, at what point are the insurance companies or OSHA going to come in and say, we now need to regulate this industry and they regulate it into oblivion? You know, yeah, it, yeah. It, it's like a, a pendulum. It's better to self-regulate your, your, your own industry that you're familiar with. And come up with the systems to make it safer so that it never gets to the point that a government agency is alerted to something that's going on and decides they have to get involved. Nobody wins from that. Sure. And this is this is why it's like, you know, you guys keep putting this off and, and kicking this this can down the road one of these days. Yeah. But I just feel like I'm a, I'm this one man soapbox. Uh, I've been told by 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 people who's like Scott. Be quiet. Keep your mouth shut. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's scary. That's scary. You know, 
Yeah. I can't. I can't. But yeah, I've, I've I, seen, I've seen like, you know, I'm part of like a lot of those Facebook forums and, uh, you know, of all the people in those forums, I would definitely say that you are definitely one of the most vocal people when it comes to safety on set and you're uh, just a big uh, voice in the room. So I appreciate that as a, as a filmmaker yeah. who works on sets, who wants to work in a safe environment. There is no kind of overseeing authority that makes sure that things are going safely. So I appreciate the fact that you are looking out for not just yourself and your business, but for the rest of us and trying to implement yeah. change. It's a it's a it's an admirable admirable thing. No, so, I mean it just it's you know it 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 helps when you become one of the elders and you have the the the, uh, the stature. I remember doing a rooftop, and uh, it was this black uh, female key grip. And uh, we were up there, and there's this line of thunderstorms, and you can see it right on the radar. Man, this thing, this looked bad. And I said to the producers, look, this line, it looks like it's about 10 or 15 minutes away. Uh, we need to clear the rooftop, and we need to, to batten down the hatches. He's like, no, 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 we, we just need a little bit more time to finish this, this scene. And so I gave him like three more minutes, and then I walked up to him, and I said, look, I'm bringing my crane down, and where it's going to go down is going to be in the middle of your shot. I'm sandbagging it there we are preparing the, the set uh this is done all right you you will call uh the, this job and i mean and what i felt bad about is this woman it's not like she didn't know as well but who's gonna let listen to the black female grip right all right you know and this this was just the reality like this sucks oh she was speaking up uh, to stop it as well yeah, she yeah, and she was she's a very experienced grip. This this was you know uh, no, no no newbie, right? But it's just like I had to take my role as a male of uh, you know of of older age and white and go up to this guy and say you are shut down. The crew needs uh, ten or fifteen minutes to secure this location. Get everyone off the roof. When we came down, when that front hit, it was. Thunder, thunder and lightning simultaneous so it was right over our head and right. he came up to me and said Scott thank you like yeah. you actually you, you probably saved somebody from getting really injured up there yeah. I'm like you know yes thank you for acknowledging but you know what it's still messed up that your grip yeah. who is the one that should have been and would have we all know that you would never have listened to her and that that's what upset me about that situation. Yeah. That's not right. Yeah, and it says a lot of also yeah, just about the dynamics on set and just like the, you know, uh, yeah. the things like that that they're just so disturbing that it's it's reality. Yeah. You know, you think it's something that happened, it's something like out of a storybook from like the 40s or 50s, but still to this day there's still that kind of stuff day. on on set, so. Yeah. 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 So anyway, getting back to jibs, um, I just wanted to try to transition a little bit. Um, what kind of skills do you need in order to be a successful like crane op? The skill is about finesse. Uh, to be able to understand the mood. Or, I'm talking about um, uh, uh, storytelling uh, crane up. If you, if you, if you, here, here's an easier way. If you're going to do music videos, um, you just haul an ass. Are you strong? Right. Yeah. And, and can you whip this thing around at high rates of speed? Uh, so that that's, you know, a skill. Uh, you have to have that, that strength. You have to have that ability. Um, and the ones who do have it, you know, it's great. Uh, wonderful thing. Uh, but I'm more interested in, in storytelling of uh, crane use 
So a movie, uh, a commercial, um, a subtle music video, you know, not, 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 you know, heavy metal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and here it's, it's about, yes, it's, it's understanding the camera is your audience. So you as a grip have the audience in your hand and you're moving them around the set showing them what you want them to see in the manner that you want to see it and at the pace that you want them to see it. So obviously this emanates from, you know, what the DP says, what the director says, so forth and so on. But you have to feel it in and of its, of yourself mm-hmm. and to understand how your arm motion uh, translates into camera motion. Uh, so, you know, my text for now is now going on 16 years of uh, three different texts for all women. And I, I've interviewed men, I've, you know, uh, 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 males, whatever, uh, women. And uh, I've assessed uh, the, the nature of their work. What's going on with the young uh, grips that are hitting the, the industry now, the male grips, is, well, here's your choice. Uh, you can spend six months just to get the foundation amount of, of knowledge to do this work and years to perfect it. Um, or you can go try to be, you know, be an applicant with 52, go out onto a union job five days a week, pair of gloves, no skill skills, move equipment around and make way more money, get health benefits, get the whole nine yards. And so trying to attract, uh, individuals into the crane market is extremely difficult. Uh, women who don't want to do that type of lifestyle of the episodic TV where they just get ground into the the, the, the the dirt every day, well, they are more inclined to want to develop those skills and they're more receptive to uh, having a mentoring process of what it will take to develop those skills. And so this has just been been my observation. So it's not about strength. I you know work with women who just you look at them and it's like, you know, how much do you weigh? You know, it's like they're they're, they're tiny, but they can do really incredible work because they had the right skills for finesse. I go out on a music video. Uh, it's like, okay, I need to get I, I need to get you know Smitty on the the, the back of the crane mm-hmm. who can whip this thing around. Uh, like, you know, nobody's business. So that's, that's my job as a camera operator is make sure that I have not put on somebody on the back of the crane who obviously, you know, physically doesn't have the strength or the, or the, or the ability to do the moves that that, that particular uh, project requires. But this whole thing of like getting into, you know, getting into the crane market, um, I don't know why anybody would ever want to get into the crane market right now. It's just so at, it's oversaturated. Uh, it seems like the ticket to how to get out of really hard work, you know, like, yeah, you, know, you sit on the techno crane all day long and don't do anything. Then you do one shot then you wrap it and you put it away and you get paid a ton of money. Well, uh, there's not that many jobs that are like that. Uh, and there are way too many people who are getting those jobs, and 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 it's done through a system not of applications, but you know friendships and buddies and and, and that kind of stuff. Sure. So to to be like coming out of school and saying, yeah, well, this is an area I want to go into, I'm going to just be black and white. I would highly discourage uh, you taking that approach. Uh, it's it's just extremely difficult and it's unrealistic and. Uh, y- there's not enough of a turnover uh, to 
to be able to, to capture a role that's opening up. And usually when a role does open up, it's being filled through some other source, a recommendation mm-hmm. or, or so forth and so on. Um, I just uh, really am frustrated by the, the crane market. And I would just implore people, look to other areas that have a more consistent uh, lifestyle and workflow and pursue those and don't go into grains. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure it probably takes years also to just establish yourself as um, yeah. you know a, a crane operator. Um, yeah. I think that's what a lot of people don't understand when they're just starting out and trying to get into whatever field is it does take a long time for you to brand yourself and be known in the industry as yeah. a specific role, whether it's a crane operator, a drone operator, a, a yeah. gaffer, whatever. So yeah, I think because it's so specialty, yeah. it's probably very hard and takes a long time yeah. to get. And, and, and with the new technology, just creating so much uh, content that has to be created, uh, I would just think that there are better opportunities uh, in the lighting areas, the technology areas, board operator, uh, you know, it just there's there's so many new technologies that are are opening up. Uh, to be young, coming out of school, you want, and this is where that college degree does really count. Is you you need to be able to master these technological uh, transitions that are taking place. Uh, you know, I look at what happened in the camera assistant market. So 2010 is the year that I consider to be the switchover uh, from film to uh, to digital. It was, it was very, very fast. And within five years, I looked at film sets, all the so, – so prior to 2010, your average age on a union uh, job, even non-union for a camera assistant, was between 50 and 65. Then a few years after 2010 – uh, average age uh, was was twenty five, tops thirty two. Wow, interesting! It, it completely changed because the younger kids understood how to navigate the me- uh, menus. They understood how to navigate the technology. The older guys knew the aesthetics of the mechanics behind the machines, and once those mechanics went away, uh, they, they they couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Well, you're you're now looking at similar unfoldings in the lighting area. You know, whereas years back, you would be able to fill in on this theory as well as, you know, the, the huge power plants, the thousand amp generators. Well, now you got a, a 6,500. And I so watched a, a movie, a, 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 a union tiered movie, you know, low budget, but mm-hmm. it was a union movie. Whole night exterior was run off of one 6,500. Wow. And yeah. extension courts. Yeah, LEDs, man. Because all LEDs. Yeah. So there's so much that's going into to the technology area. These are the things to learn because when you have these skills, you will be in demand for those skills. And the people who don't have those skills, they will, you know, gradually be replaced. You know, so what, what the coal miners are dealing with. Yeah, there are going to be more jobs in energy coming forward. It just the jobs won't be in coal. You know, you've been in the industry obviously for a long time, and you've seen a lot of changes, like like the one that you just mentioned. Um, in terms of camera movement, you know, with all these drones and gimbals and stuff like that, what's what's been like the general approach now that you've been seeing to camera movements in you know videos and films that you've been working on? Yeah, you know, the the, the drone market is is awesome because it does not 
uh, interfere directly with the crane market. It did interfere with one specific crane, which is, I think, called the Aquila. It's like 125 feet, you know, camera height. Well, you, you don't need that equipment anymore. The, the drone can re replace that piece of equipment. But as far as the work that I do, uh, the, the drones supplement the footage that I'm doing, but do not replace. Uh, so I'm the one that can do the precision, getting into, to, you know, close to an actor, moving around an actor. Uh, you know, it's bad enough that you got a crane in and around an actor. Uh, last thing I think that anybody wants is a drone circling in and around uh, the actor. A, the, 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 the wind will just mess up the hair and the noise. But, I mean, I think we, you know, producers and we all respect that uh, drones need to have a certain physical distance from, from the people that, that they are filming um, for, for safety. So the, the drones eliminate... Uh, you know, the, the producer frustration or the director frustration of like, no, I need to get higher. I need to see over that rooftop to the skyline in the, the background. Uh, Time Warner ads. You know, we were always running into this. They wanted to be in Brooklyn, you know, uh, craning up uh, uh, up in the air. And they wanted to see over the brownstone and see, you know, the the, uh, the, the Manhattan skyline in the background. Well, you know, a 40-foot crane's not going to get that. Right. You know, not on a five-story building. You you need to get 80 to 90 feet up in the air. I mean, we're, we're not even close. Now the drones got that shot. And they're happy. It's like, yeah. Uh, this, this is a wonderful thing. It's, it's wonderful that this technology is, is doing really well. It's opening up all sorts of opportunities to those individuals that are doing that. But here again, what is the verification process? I mean, you've got the licensing, which is good, and I'm not that familiar with, with what's involved. But is this licensing just about knowing what the FAA rules and regulations are? Uh, I know that Local 600 was blocking uh, allowing drone operators to carry a Local 600 card because they didn't want the liability. Oh, wow. Uh, and that, I believe, is either has changed or is changing that those uh, individuals can be on a union job and get uh, union benefits. But, I mean, this was these guys were, you know, on union jobs and they, they couldn't score benefits uh, for, 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 for doing the days because local 600 said no. But so I, I believe that that has finally been resolved. But here again, who is testing, you know, in a course like, all right, do this turn, do that, go through this maze. You know, what are your actual abilities? You know, like what, what a camera assistant has to go through on, on taking a camera test. You know, it's, it's, it's a sobering test. You better know those cameras or you're, you're not getting into the union. Sure. Well, this this is, has to switch over. And why is Local 600 uh, doing this? Because they're operating a camera, but Local 52, the grips, they deal with camera motion. So why is this not 52, who then would also have a better, like in their 52 stage, bring in your drone. We're going to make you do you know, uh, uh, this, this maze, this course. And if you're good, you get a certification. If you're not, uh, please don't appear on any of our, our union jobs. Sure. All right. It's not hard. Just have somebody, you know, to, to do this. But so, yes, it's all good that the, the industry is, is progressing in new technologies, uh, but we should be old enough and mature enough to get out of this Wild West mentality. 
getting back to also like the drones versus the the cranes also um one thing that i've noticed is you know with the crane you with a crane you can, and a jib you can replicate the same shot over and over so you have to if you have to do multiple takes it's much easier probably with a crane because you have that precision and control over the machine whereas with the drones um you would probably have to do multiple takes because just to get the right framing and, right. and everything like that it's not as precise well, there was just- there's this very, very famous. It, it it like changed the whole nature of the drone industry. It's this this uh, like three minute video of a drone flying in and around uh, bowling alley, bowling alley, yeah, right in, yeah. in the Midwest. And you know, it's just just like wow, you know, yeah, take my money. It's incredible. Like, yeah. This is incredible. Um, and it was in fact one take. I thought it was maybe stitched together multiple takes. Nope, nope. They're saying it was one take. I believe them. But now there's one specific shot where the drone goes in between a bowler's legs. All right. Do you know who that person was? Who? Who's the producer? Oh wow. <laughs> All right. He said, "Look, if you're going to hit somebody, you better be me. I don't want talent. I don't want a lawsuit. Sure. I'm not going to sue myself. <laughs> but so this is the thing of like, no, you know, and it would make sense if I was the producer, I'd be the same thing. Yeah. Like you, you hit me. Uh, cause I'm not going to sue myself, uh, but I'm not going to do it to anybody else. Um, you know, to, to put them in that, that position. Uh, but we went to shot and I wanted enough that, that I'll, I'll take the hit. I'm going to trust you guys. Um, you know, hopefully he had some type of, you know, guards underneath his pants to, to protect himself if he did get hit, whatever. But, you know, the, these are again, the things like, well, you know, is it okay to have a stunt t- double in there? I mean, they would never put a lead actor. You know, so if that was on a on a film and it's Tom Cruise, uh, they're going to have a a, a, a stunt, stunt Tom double. Cruise. Yeah. Well, that's the the stunt double's job is to take those risks. It's like, yes, okay, that that's true. Um, so so there are people who understand this and and they they've learned how to um, deal with the risks and the, the stunt people are are approaching that. But there are just many other grayer areas where you it's not close enough to have a stunt double, but do, should we be pushing this envelope? So I don't know how to, to, uh, to, to advise regulating this. Uh, the market is very effective if you injure people. Um, you, your, your reputation gets hit yeah. and everybody knows about it yeah. and the, the internet's all over it. Uh, so that does does keep people's noses clean, and that's a form of self-regulation. Uh, so is that enough? I, I, I don't know. Yeah. You know, just, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, so but, this is just changing subjects a little bit, but the, the relationship that you have as a crane operator um, and a jib operator with the DP is an interesting one because uh, cinematographers have a vision. They have like a master vision of what their film is going to look like. Um, but oftentimes they can't actually operate the jib. They have to basically delegate that to you. And a lot right. of DPs that I work with, they're very hands-on and they like being behind the camera and their eye against the, the viewfinder. Um, what's your relationship like with DPs? Like what is that, like when 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 you get brought onto a project, what kind of discussions do you have? What kinds of yeah. things? And it's, are a, there any- it's, a really, it's a really good uh, um, question. I always approach my discussion with the, the DP. Uh, imagine that they're, they are wearing bedroom slippers and be very careful about their toes. So when I'm discussing with a DP about the makeup, do they want to operate the, the head or do they want me to, I have to be very uh, diplomatic because I, I don't want to step on, on any toes. And, and when you, can get when you say very, head, you mean the actual camera itself, right? Yeah. 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 The, the, the camera uh, itself. Uh, 
So you, and, so just uh, for people that aren't familiar with jibs, um, so when you operate the jib, there's someone that's actually moving the arm, allowing the camera to go up, down, left, and right, in and out. But you can also have someone else operate the the panning of the camera itself, which operates independently. Correct. And, and this is the, the, the basic difference between a Jimmy jib and, say, a techno crane. A Jimmy jib, you have the controls on the back, and one guy is doing the arm movement as well as the camera movement. You know, it's, it's done via joysticks. Okay. Uh, in the, the film world and in the techno crane world, uh, we don't use joysticks. Uh, we use uh, what are called whirlhead wheels, and it's just basically it's the industry standard. Uh, really, more in the, the the states in Europe, they would disagree. They they do a uh, 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 joystick. Uh, wheels is an American invention and is mastered by you know the American uh, uh, film industry. Uh, rest of the world, you know, it it it's it's new to them. So. Uh, uh, so yes, so so the way that we work is, uh, I I mean I have operated cranes for many 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 years, uh, but now I've switched over to that I'm operating the the remote head, uh, and I have headsets that communicate to my crane crew, and why I when I discuss going back to your question about the the DPS, I will explain to them that as a camera operator. When I'm watching, first of all, is I, I get a, an idea of what it is that they want to do. I relay to my crane crew in specific technical terms, extend, retract, left, right, up, down. Because I may have different people doing different things between the telescopic action and the arm. So the terminology has to be very, very specific and clear so that when a motion is sent out or a command is sent out, uh, the right person is acting upon that that command. Um, so I explained to them, you know, by having me on as a remote head operator, knowing so much about how cranes work, how their inertia works, um, all the different nuances of, of the operation, I can communicate with my crane crew so that you're getting what it is that you want. The alternative is, say, uh, to use blanket terms, so you you have an egotistical uh, DP who's like, no, I have to operate the, the head because I want to, the director to see me in, in control, and it's like, so it's a pride thing. I'm like, all right, that that's fine. I can't I can't stop you, but now that person doesn't know cranes. They don't know how, so they're just like, move in. Okay, well, move in could be extending the arm to go into the, the action. It could be an arm move, depending on where the arm is in relation to the, the action. There's like That's not a specific command. Um, I don't know what speed you want me to move into. I don't. And then they get frustrated. Why aren't you doing what I told you to do? Because you didn't actually tell me what it is that I need to know to know how to do it. I can't read your mind. Right. And so there's this level of friction that's then created uh, between the person who's operating and the, the crew that's just like, we're just doing the best we can with the information that we're getting. So the the more mature DPs will respect that my steady cam, I have a steady cam operator. My drone, I have a drone operator. My techno, I have a techno crane operator. They respect the, the, the element of craft that, that I, I bring in. And those are the ones that are very wonderful to work with. And I explained to the DP, you are, rather than being results uh, driven, like that you're having to do the shot, 
you are, I mean, being process driven, you're results driven. You're just looking at the results. Are you getting what it is that you asked us to do? Sure. And if not, explain to us, to me, what, what I'm getting wrong. Uh, but once you get into process driven, well, you're just trying to hold your head above water and keep the headroom, you know, e even, uh, you know, and, and you don't, you you just don't have the ability to, um, to, to give the right information. So, um, yeah. And, and one of the things that I've noticed is I'll get some DPs who are young and they say, look, you know what? I'd like to just spend some time on the wheels. Uh, but if I have a difficult shot, Scott, will you pull that off? And I'm like, yeah, you know, I mean, I'll come in and do your hard shots and then you get to have credit all day long for doing a great job. But all you did was a static frame. And that's just <laughs> kind of like, you know, it's like, it's disrespectful. Yeah. So I'm beginning to mitigate even that. It's like, look, you have to be able to handle the most difficult shot of the day uh, and and if not find the person who can but whoever goes on the equipment stays on the equipment for the day i don't want to do this back and forth sure. because and this was actually something that was a mexican dp it was just wonderful but there was a shot where the director was describing something and he's on wheels my uh, Melissa, who's my, my tech, was on the arm, and I could tell that they weren't getting what they wanted. And I was trying to explain to Melissa what to do. And the DP is like, Scott, I don't need you. I'm, I'm working this out with Melissa. I'm like, no, no, no. You're not giving her the right instructions. I know what the director wants. Just let me. And he shut me down. Well, they didn't get the shot that they wanted. Mm -hmm. So it's like... That, and it was otherwise a simple shot, but it just required a certain hook with the crane right. that she needed somebody to describe how to do an S-curve, how to do, you know, um, and when they shut me down, you know, then I can't do it. Sure. And this also happened on a big union uh, show where a very high-end uh, operator had the same thing. They were yelling at my, my tech, uh, Rachel, uh, Rachel, you're, you're not on your mark with the, the, the techno crane. And I'm like, and I said, no, she's on her mark. She's, she's got a six inch move on the, the telescopic action. You haven't told the grip what to do. Who's got a 40 foot move on the arm. Sure. And he said, Scott, shut up. I'm wow. like, okay, I'm going to watch this job. Just melt down. <laughs> Because, you know, like, you learn. don't know how to talk to your, you know, so, so yeah. the frustration to say that, well, no, but this is only on your your, your small, low-budget jobs, Scott. This doesn't happen on, on the bigger jobs. I'm like, no, that, I'm sorry. I saw too many big, big-budget jobs where uh, this communication breakdown uh, would, would occur um, because they're not just giving the right information. So, you know, my, my going back to the DP, the ones that I like are the ones who understand and respect the skills of the individuals. And this is the skills of a gaffer, mm -hmm. the skills of a grip. You know, when what you're there is to utilize your individual skills um, and, and, and make it happen. P console, it's gotta be like one of the top DPs on the job. You barely hear Pete saying a word all day long. Why? Because he's already had the discussions with his guys before the job. They know what they're doing. They get on the job. They do it. And the amount of information that's coming in from Pete is very, very little because he's already done his job yeah. going into the shoot. These jobs were, go very, very smoothly. This is why he's cream of the crop. You know, in the in the the, the commercial world, it mm -hmm. does um, episodics. You know, it's just 
they are out there. Uh, I was still reborn. Sure, sure. So <clears throat> what are, like, this is just changing subjects a little bit. Like, um, you know, you, the locations of your job changes from day to day. One day you might be on the street. The next day you might be at Yankee Stadium. The next day you might be, you know, uh, in an alleyway somewhere in uh, the Lower East Side. What are some of the craziest locations that you've actually had to shoot in? Or set up your jibs and set up your, your cranes in? I don't know that I know how to answer that. It, it's, they really actually aren't. I mean, they're grueling setups where we have to go up onto a rooftop and it's just like, oh, I'm just too old. All right, next time, just get a Jimmy Jim. I don't want to do the job. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just, but I, I would have to say overall, uh, I mean, like what we did last, last uh, Friday, uh, it was pouring rain all night long and we were doing a hurricane scene. And so they had the rain towers and they had the two uh, wind machines that are, um, you know, six foot diameter um, propeller blades mounted to Chevy V8 engines. And so, you know, during the, the take, the, the, the wind uh, speed is about, you know, 80 to 90 miles an hour. Wow. Um, and, and we're moving in and around, you know, we've got to relocate the, the crane and it's just pouring rain. Just, you know, when they cut the, the rain towers, you know, there was a slight decrease in the amount of water that was coming down, but not noticeable, you know, and we're out there in these, these just horrific conditions all night long and the cranes all motorized. So I'm like, yeah, I don't need any grips, you know, and we're, we're, we're plugging around and going through muck and, and, you know, stuff like that. So that, that was a very, very trying uh, day. It took me three days to recover. Wow. Uh, did, did a lot of sleeping after that because it was, <laughs> was really brutal, but that's, that's the, the exception. Uh, you know, it used to be cranes were uh, set up and done for just all sorts of crazy shots. I mean, this is, you know, the craziest shot I ever did. I hope this isn't off, off target, but it's sort of along the line, same lines. Back in the 1990s, we were doing a music video with Queen Latifah. And Queen Latifah's a, a big lady. Uh, you know, she, she, she's big. Not fat, big. Sure. And uh, so the shot uh, had her... Uh, walking on a treadmill, and a treadmill is 200, 250 pounds, so they're not light either. The treadmill was mounted on the end of one of my fixed-length steel uh, uh, camera cranes, and the camera crane was mounted to John DeAnda's uh, flatbed camera car, and the, flat, and the camera car was driving down Fifth Avenue. So the shot is... You know, basically Queen Latifah floating in air as we're going down down Fifth Avenue. You know, this was cool. Yeah. <laughs> this this was a cool setup. You know, and, and, and this this was the the fun. There were so many fun, fun, really intense ideas and 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 stuff that they did in the 1990s for for music videos. But now things have simplified, settled down significantly. Sure. So the types of locations that I'm going into, well, it's going to be uh, appropriate for a crane to go into that location because if the location, you know, you're out in the woods or in the muck, there's other equipment that's more appropriate uh, for that situation. So they're not dragging me out into, you know, minefields to shoot. Uh, or, or, you know, mud pits, yeah. that kind of stuff. So it's just, 
you know, between the just the industry taking off with music videos in the 1990s uh, uh, and fewer alternatives to now where it's settled down and there are many alternatives. Uh, no, I would say that uh, there's nothing unique about the locations that I'm going into. Sure. Uh, you know, it's, it's just I still like it, getting location scouts just so I can understand uh, the perimeters, especially if it's interior. But uh, yeah. And for, I guess, for the younger listeners who are just either getting out of film school or transitioning into the industry from something different uh, or starting, you know, their careers um, fresh, what kind of advice would you give them to get their foot in the door to really start kind of learning the craft of filmmaking or specializing in a specific field? Have a positive attitude. Have a positive attitude. Have a positive attitude. Yeah. This is 99% of it of, you know, just uh, if you have a negative attitude, I do not believe that you will stand much of a chance. And uh, it, it, it's, it cannot be overemphasized that enjoy yourself, enjoy your work, enjoy your surroundings, because it will show in the manner with which you project yourself. Um, it takes a long time to, to realize how little you do know and that these people and they're dressed like crap. You know, they got these raggedy jeans and scruffy hair and they look like they're, you know, a, a week away from their, their, their deathbeds. But you know what? They're really smart and they know a lot. So don't don't judge them. Don't think that, you know, more because you're a kid than these old scruffy dudes, you know, embrace them that they have knowledge, and if you have the right approach, they might actually be inclined to bring you into their throes and and help you out. But when you approach them of, you know, the okay boomer attitude of, uh, you know, adversarial, you know, we have our own structure, you guys are dying, we're going to start the industry all up over again. Uh, you can try it, but... Uh, you know, it's a blind leading the blind. Uh, you want to, you, you do eventually want to try to seek out those who have more experience, and uh, and if you can tap into, you know, paternal instincts that exist, uh, where you know, uh, men of my age want to see younger individuals uh, grow. And take them on as their their sons or daughters. That's a good thing. That's beneficial. You do better. But if you want to, you know, put this curse like you only you know everything, then you know just good luck. I mean, I, I, I you might you might succeed. Plenty of people with really bad attitudes go really really far. So I'm you know I'm just one person giving one piece of advice. I'm not saying that I'm right. Sure. No, I think it's fairly important. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh yeah. Attitude for me. It's like, you know, I, sometimes I'm in uh, a hiring position and I'll take someone with a good attitude that doesn't know as much uh, yeah. over someone that knows a lot, but sucks to yeah. work with, you know, I, I, I can train for lack of knowledge. I can't train for attitude. Yeah. It's character. You can't either do have it. it or you don't. Yeah. Yeah. You either have it or you don't. And, and the film industry, it's a people industry. It's a people thing. It's, it's about a group of people who come together for a common goal. Um, and I think it's one of the most exhilarating parts of our industry, unlike a, a factory 
atmosphere or an office atmosphere. Uh, we have just so much going for us in the energy, the manner with which we, we get work done. Um, you know, it's, it's really, it's not for everyone, uh, but it's a great, great place that it exists for those who can't fit in other, other areas. So, you know, it's like, yeah, what a, what a great place. Yeah. Um, you know? So that yeah. wraps up most of the questions that I have, um, for people that who haven't worked with you or that, you know, that want to learn more about either you or, and jib uh, in your company, um, what's the best way for them to find you online? I don't know. I try to, I try to stay hidden from view. <laughs> <laughs> uh, techno jib is what my website. Okay. Uh, and, uh, so you can go on and just kind of see, see the stuff that I, I do. Uh, but I, you know, I don't advertise hev- heavily. Um, you know, I don't, I don't have Google searches. I, I guess you could probably Google search me, but, uh, you know, other, other places probably pop up first. Uh, you know, I'm on Facebook, you know, Scott Buckler, uh, and you get, you know, jobs that I, you know, like, oh, okay, you know, I'm in the rain and I'll post a couple of uh, photos of, you know, what I'm doing. Sure. Uh, but yeah, it's, I, I do, uh, you know, I, I keep to myself, um, I, I just have a very small business. No, there are no job openings. I have one tech. Uh, basically, I, I wait for the techs to uh, uh, get married, uh, move on to other careers, or pass away. Uh, you know, I, 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 I don't turn through techs. Sure. Uh, once I bring on somebody, that person's there for, for you know, quite some Several time. Years, yeah. and, and in fact, as I had one, one tech actually begged me, she was going off to be a, a DP. And, um, and she's like, Scott, I'm begging you to find somebody else. I'll help you. I'll do anything. <laughs> you know, it's just like, like, no, I, I don't like to let go of people. I, sure. you know, I, I, I'm there to, you know, uh, you may have good days and you may have bad days, but you will always be with me all the days. And, uh, you know, really give, give, give somebody the, that ability to feel like they have a, a, a place. Whereas other companies like, oh, I don't want to say anything bad because, you know, they're stop hiring me. It's like, no, say something bad to me. Did I screw up? Tell me to my face. Sure. You're still going to get hired, <laughs> you know, but, but this way it creates a safer atmosphere. Yeah. You know, I'm not, I'm not like some God or something like that, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, if I get a plethora of phone calls, I'm going to just be like, look, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, but it's just, you know, uh, as soon as somebody dies, I'll let you know. But, you know, Melissa's, you know, she's in her mid-20s. It's She's got a long way. Yeah, 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 <laughs> I'll, yeah. I'll probably die. You know? So <laughs> just, uh, and then that's the, the whole thing of, of like, you know, getting into the, the whole crane market. It's just, it's just so hard. Always has been. Yeah. Always has been. So. Uh, there, there, there are many other areas of growth that, that, that for, for people. I just, you know, hope maybe through this podcast, I've somehow given somebody some inclination of like, hey, you know, that's that's a good idea. You know, that that really helped uh, change my thinking or gave me a different perspective of of how to go about things. What I've found is that every, everybody needs to be unique in their approach. Uh, you know, there's no set standard for how it is you go about succeeding. And, uh, you know, the, the best way is like, you know, to get a job at a rental house uh, as an intern or something like that. Well, there are only so many jobs that, that the rental houses have that offer that. But you got to you got to keep looking around and, and trying to find, you know, who might have a position. You know, uh, sometimes you go in and, and just like just be seen. 
I know of guys that when Three G's had their stage on 61st Street, there were guys they would just come to the stage every day and just hang out. It was like I'm not going to get seen if I'm sitting in my my apartment, so I just come in and hang out at Three G's. Yeah, you know. And then so and so comes in and says, "Hey, I, I need a grip for next week. Are you available?" It's like, yeah. So you know, you go into a rental house. You know, they they may not want lo- loitering. They may chase you out, but uh, <laughs> you know. But if you're friendly and you're nice, and it's just like so that's that you know it's just you gotta just think of what are the possible ways of of creating your own luck mm-hmm. and and creating that situation where you in you you cross paths with that person who happens to know somebody you know want somebody at that particular time and and you know we're about familiar faces we don't like new faces on a film set it's nothing personal but we on a film set we want to recognize the faces that we've worked with before so how do you get to be a recognizable face you know it's these these are the options but they're you know they're not not like the what they were before, where you had really major rental houses that, that you could congregate gate out. Now it's a a bunch of different little splinter uh, operations that, that add a, additive make up an industry. So you know, it just kind of just gotta gotta you know do the networking all around. Yeah, Facebook yeah. is great actually. The the Grip Electric site there's there's a great way to uh, you know start networking there. You, you bring up a really good point of like uh you know the industry not liking new faces and i personally have uh, have experienced that where you know uh, someone will come in you know uh, basically the new person on set and i just kind of unfortunately write them off because i don't know who they are i don't know what their level of of you know uh, skills are i don't know if that person's cool if i'm going to get along with that person so i just kind of immediately put up a, a front and after yeah. time, you know, and that's not just one job. It's having seen them and worked with them on multiple shoots. We start warming up. We start, you know, yeah. joking about yeah. previous shoots. And there's just this bond with people yeah. that are that we've experienced. So for new people, it's really, really hard. And especially because I think a lot of the younger generation is so used to just spending so much of their free time on Facebook, thinking that they're going to get work that way. I think there's a lot to be said about, you know, showing up at places. And even if you're not getting paid, just, just hanging out, showing that you have a friendly yeah. attitude and just having, you know, uh, the the curiosity and and, and willingness yeah. to try to you know be close to the action um, I think that speaks a lot and it's uh yeah it's I, I thought yeah. that was a really good, I mean, good point you know what, what I would say you know first statement put your phone away yeah and then 100%. when you do get on set put your phone away you may see your keys on their phone all day long that's fine that's what they do you you just got hired do yourself a favor put your phone in your knapsack. You know, put in another room. Don't ever pull the phone out. Yeah, that's going to put you ten times uh, better position than the next guy uh, uh, who's who's there starting out and is there on his phone texting and on, on Facebook. Just make no mistake, that key can watch you from fifty feet away. He's got his eyeball. Like, yeah, he's on his phone. I don't like him. Yep. Yep. And it's just like, you guys, this this new generation and with the phones, uh, make no mistake, it will kill an entire generation of individuals until they learn that you got to put that phone away. And it just, it's it's deadly. Deadly. No, nothing will kill your career faster. 
Yeah, no, hundred percent. So when I hire people, like one thing that drives me nuts, and it's the first thing that jumps out at me is, is that person engaged? And like, if they don't know what they're doing, are they standing next to me waiting for me to ask them for something or to teach them something, or are they thirty feet off, you know, checking their Facebook or Instagram? Right. That drives yeah. me nuts. I can't tell you. Yeah, you know, the attitude is, if you tell me to do something, I will do it. Until then, I will be here on my my phone. And it's like, no, you you, you can can you anticipate yes. a need? Yes. How can you anticipate a need if you're on your phone? You anticipate a need because you're looking and scanning the set, and you see, oh, that light's going up. It needs a sandbag. You, if you're asked for a sandbag, that's a strike against you. Yeah. You know, if you're gripping, if you're PA, you can't grab the, the sandbag, you know, because, but if you're PA, it's like, hey, does the craft service area need to be tidied up? What can you do? How can you anticipate um, uh, uh, the needs of a set so that whoever's your, your manager, whether it's a, the, the gaffer, the producer, whatever, can you? Do if, if you have to be asked to do something, unless it's a unique task, uh, but if you have to be asked to uh, a mundane, uh, uh, like, hey, can you take out a broom and sweep up the set? No. You get downtime? Hey, there's a broom over there. Let me sweep up the set. Yeah. Everybody likes a clean set. And you're not touching anybody's equipment. I'm, and I'm talking about if you're, you're a PA. So say you're not not assigned to a, a, a department and you want to know what to do. You know, keep, keep the set, you know, go around and, and clean up garbage. Do something. Don't wait to be asked. Uh, that will, will, will set you up as, as step one. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, cleaning up the set, you know, if you are on as a 15th grip or electric, you know, clean up the set, tidy it. Yeah. Make it look nice. Don't be asked. There was a there was a lady. Her name's Hallie. Um, I brought her on a few years ago um, as like a trainee. I wasn't sure if I was going to keep her or not, so um, I brought her on to start training her and seeing if she was a right fit. And one of the things that jumped I'll never forget this. One of the first things that jumped out at me about her was when she wasn't like it was one time that you know there was a lot of downtime on this on the shoot, and you know we would be sitting around for an hour, hour and a half waiting for the next setup. Um, I looked over and she was walking towards me with three bottles of water. She gave me a bottle of water and she gave uh, the DP a bottle of water. And that to me right. instantly, without me even having to ask her for a bottle of water, she came yeah. and brought me one. So to me, that, that that said that she's looking out not just for her job and her specific task, but she's also thinking about the crew. And yeah, now, with that and, simple and You know act, what the, the, the proper answer to that is? Uh, you got something on your nose. What do you mean? You got uh, from from uh, kissing somebody's butt. You, you oh, say, okay. yeah, you got you got something on your nose there. You know, yeah, you can give them. You know, because it's a way to compliment them. Because yeah, you're yeah. absolutely right. But it's like, yeah, I know what you're doing. You're just kissing butt. You yeah. Know? Um, so, so you you say like, hey, yeah, you got something on your nose there. You know, yeah. We're gonna get that off. But no, that's what you. What, what we're we're seeing is just like. You know, to do something, you know, find a way that you can be part of the solution. I have this discussion with Melissa all the time. There are mm-hmm. two types of individuals. They are those who are part of the, the problem and those who are part of the solution. Yes. If you can keep yourself in the camp that you're part of the solution, you have, you will carry forth. Absolutely. If you are consistently the one who is part of the problem, um, then you will not understand why your career is not progressing. Yeah, 100%. You know, and, and this is really where, where COVID actually did kind of help because there, the, the industry had gotten so overheated. People were coming into this business that had no knowledge and boom, they're, they're ending up on union jobs and this and that. And everybody was working and it's like, oh my God, you need a, you need a pause that will just force some of these people out of the industry. 
you know, and, and like you just chase them away. Uh, you're not any good at it. And to allow the next crop to come in and replace some that uh, that is good. So this this is one of the trade offs of of a, a really overheated market is it can reward uh, uh, an attitude that is not uh, a long term sustainable attitude, but mm-hmm. just relying on the fact that the industry is overheated. And then you get a recession which doesn't last a year, but it lasts three years. Yeah, yeah, and those, those people all go away. Sure. So. Yeah, there is, there is an ebb and flow to the the economic cycles, uh, and and you know the the good people will will stick through it. The bad, you know, oh, I'm going to go into retail, and or I'm going to go, you know, work at Amazon, or you know, sure. whatever it is. Sure. Yeah. So yeah. Well, amazing, Scott. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Um, really, like, I appreciate you just dropping knowledge on you know myself. I'm learning a lot just by talking to you, but also hopefully the listeners um, are learning a little bit about you know what it what it takes to be a crane operator, what goes into being a crane operator, um, and just in the industry uh, in general. So, thank you. Yeah. I appreciate. Yeah, you know, everything. no, I had a great time. You know, it's two hours of my life I'll never get back, Tom. <laughs> but you know, uh, <laughs> no, it was a lot of fun. This week's episode is sponsored by my lighting company, Mastershot Films. Since 2008, thousands of productions have entrusted the Mastershot team to deliver and operate all the lighting equipment for their interviews, branded content, and social media videos. Our gaffers and key grips deliver anywhere in the tri-state area. Visit mastershotfilms.com to see a virtual tour of our GE vans and to see some BTS videos of our lighting setups that we've lit over the years. Save 10% on your first booking by using the promo code NYC Video Podcast. Okay, so that just about wraps up today's interview with the one and only Scotty Buckler. I'm glad he was able to demystify the process of how a jib and crane operator works, along with offering some of his observations about the industry and safety on set, or the lack thereof. I've had the pleasure of working alongside Scotty on several projects throughout the years, and I can honestly say that he's a bit of a mad genius with his trucks and his crane setup. But with that being said, he's totally approachable and super down-to-earth when people ask him basic questions about camera movements and his custom-built rigs. I have no idea how he fits all that stuff in the back of his trucks, though. Anyway, if you're a cinematographer or producer and you have any specific questions about jibs or cranes, you can find Scotty through his website or the Grip and Electric group on Facebook. He's a great resource to have in your contact list when you need a reliable jib or crane operator in the tri-state area. Lastly, if you're based here in New York and want to stay informed about industry news and gain indispensable advice from some of your peers, be sure to subscribe to the show. You can follow us on Instagram to see guests and listen to episodes based on your specific interest. If you have a question or you'd like to explore a particular theme, DM us on Instagram. And lastly, if you're interested in running a sponsored ad for your business on our show and engaging with the New York film and video community, amazing. Shoot us an email at nycvideopodcast at gmail.com. Until next week, I'm Tom Chavez, and you've been listening to the NYC Video Podcast. I'll see you on set.